Welcome everybody. My name is Alexander Greb. I am the Customer Advisory Lead S4HANA Strategy at SAP and you are listening to the SAP Experts Podcast. In case you are working in a tech corporate environment and you have not founded the company you are working in, chances are that you have an almost romantic view about the life and work of entrepreneurs. I met with one of those at the office of his company Munich who pass on safe and frequent salary checks for the sake of freedom and being able to do their own thing. It is Stefan Odörfer, who is founder and managing director of 42, a tech company that is leading in enabling computer operation via eye control and also a keynote speaker at this week's virtual edition of the SAP Now Switzerland. We talk about what it means to be an entrepreneur, the qualities, habits and best practices of successful ones And of course about eye control, a technology that is about to revolutionize the way we humans interact fast and efficient and in comfort with computers. Because this is what's going to happen here in episode 24 of the SAP Experts Podcast. Welcome Stefan. Hi Alex. Stefan, as an entrepreneur, People working in a corporate environment, especially in tech, most of the times look at you part with admiration and part with a little bit suspicion probably. Tell me, why did you become an entrepreneur? How, how is your backstory in that area? I think one of the reasons which uh, helped me in, in, in this way is that both of my parents have been working for themselves, so basically have been entrepreneurs. You had the role models. Kind of, mm -hmm. yeah. So when I was younger and the first time I started a company was uh, in 2004 in, during my studies. And the idea basically was that we created one of the first, I would say, digital transformation stories in, back in my university in Theodarmstadt because we created a kind of a paper related process mm -hmm. for all the students to take courses or to select courses into a, well, digital transformation and, and everything was done within a split second at 12 o'clock in the night. So was it something out of, it, it just happened by accident in a way because you were already very active and did things for not, when other people were going to parties you were probably somewhere in the basement and, and thinking of new stuff. Um, so did it, did it came like this or was it something like, I have a dream to become billionaire and tech Silicon Valley here and so on. What, what was that urge that made you what you are? Well, I attended the parties too, so... And, <laughs> and, and it was not... And it is still not to be a billionaire or something. That's not what drives me. What back then drove me was that I saw an issue that I had really in my daily life during the studies. And I saw the opportunities that IT can bring to optimize a process and to make life easier for the stakeholders, the, the secretaries and, and the students, etc. And I think what helped me basically was back then, today it's not old, it's... I had my first computer with the age of eight in the beginning of the 80s. This was quite early. So tech always was part of my life and I admired it. And I, I really like tech, what basically tech is capable of bringing to the humans. Because this is what I think tech should do. It should make life for humans easier, not the other way around. So that we need to adapt to tech. And this, this, this is what drives me basically. And back then, I saw this opportunity and, and, and the, the university saw this spirit that we had mm -hmm. and basically allowed us to, to create this concept and then bring this concept to life. And then it was basically too late to apply at an already existing company. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I would say what I would like to do different, then I would... I never work for corporate. Yeah. So I did work before I started to study in a small and medium enterprise, mm -hmm. but not in a large corporate. And this is what I would say, what would have helped me mm -hmm. in, the, in the beginning 
to do things differently, uh, to learn not by myself, but learning by seeing it how it usually is done in different places. So when, when we look at what distinguished you from probably co-students at your university who went a different path, who like went that classical way, um, writing applications to existing companies. Of course, probably there was something like um, parents, like you said, who you had different role models maybe like them. You had probably, of course, opportunities, um, but is there, let's say, where you say a different kind of personality which is needed to make, on the one hand, at that point in life, this decision, and then later on, of course, also become a good entrepreneur because you just want to become somebody doesn't mean automatically that you will be successful, you will be a good one. What kind of role does personality uh, play for you? I think that you should have a, a part of you should be um, something that goes out, that, that you're not sitting in the corner so that you go to people and speak to people and that you look around and see things that work and do not work. And I think this is, this is a mindset that just thinking about how to solve problems that is very important for entrepreneurs because basically as an entrepreneur you do have two, chain, two ways to create a company. Either you have a problem and you find a solution or you have a technology and you look for a problem. And the first one is the better one, actually, because you already have um, you have a target already in front of you. And I think that is something that that must be a part of somebody who is willing to to start a company and to well lose security yeah. security in terms of um, well a soft uh, a soft bottom if you fail, yeah. right? Because one of the most important things you have to keep in mind is that as an entrepreneur, the chances to succeed are really small. Yeah. It's like evolution in the nature. There's hundreds and thousands and billions of chances that did not succeed, but there are things that succeed and then these will evolve over time more and more and more. So. As an entrepreneur, you need to be always positive. Mm -hmm. So you have a positive spirit in your, in your mind and you need to look for problems and how to solve them and just um, put up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. So it's like you said at the beginning, something like a get things done, an absolute get things done attitude. And the second part, it was something like a certain kind of, you are open to risk to take them. The safety net probably is not really there. And uh, probably you also have to have a little bit different attitude to failing. Because um, I once read a book, I forgot the name, but it was like about successful entrepreneur personalities. And the most interesting thing I got out of this book was that most of these so-called successful entrepreneurs was that they were not really successful all the time. Yeah, For example, Ross Perot as one example. I think he went like bankrupt four times before he started with his then successful company. So probably um, you should be prone to fail in a certain way that, that, that your personality survives that in a certain way. And you, you do not lose your optimism in that way, of course. Absolutely. I totally agree. So Elon Musk is a, another example, somebody who failed often. Mm -hmm. And now everybody admires him because he's such a great entrepreneur. And he is, but only because he stood up always again. He failed and he stood up. And the important thing is he failed and learned and stood up. So you don't do things a second time, failures a second time. You, on, on the other hand, what you need to do is you, you, have, to be, you have to keep this optimism all the time because... Um, Like this is my third startup, mm -hmm. and for example, at my in my second startup, um, we had this. The second financing round was planned to be in 2008, eight, nine, mm -hmm. and if you think back, this was the financial crisis we had, yeah. so there was no money, never everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, if this was corporate or if this was uh, 
classical VC money or something. We did not get anything and we came down from almost 30 people to two people and sitting for months in um, came down from four office rooms to one with all the stacked uh, uh, chairs, etc. And you have to basically be optimistic and what helps there is if you are not by yourself, but if you are found a company with two, maybe three. So I, w I would say two is a good uh, is a good choice because sometimes person A drags person B another way and sometimes the other way around because you will have these well these valleys of uh, non-motivation yeah, nobody can motivate himself uh, over years constantly did you sleep well during that time <laughs> yes and no so sleeping is it's it's an interesting thing because a lot of ideas do come during in the middle of the night so i I quite often um, wake up in the night and I, I just uh, get myself a quick note, as a, a speech note uh, with my mobile. So talking about interaction with the technology, I just grab my mobile so I don't need to open my eyes for, for um, creating a new speech note um, and can get back to sleep again quite, quite early. But sleeping is... Uh, uh, I personally, I try to not to sleep too much time, mm -hmm. and not too less. Yeah, there are some you you always find these great stories about people who are access, successful and sleep only Just four, four hours. hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These well, zombies. That's not the reason <laughs> why they are successful, yeah. right? That's probably uh, the reason why they have gray faces, but uh, not anymore. But but yeah, now you have kids. Mm -hmm. Things are different now than 2008. Um, Does this change anything for you? Because now you could not say like, okay, the VCs dried me out, uh, then I live like for two months in the camper and then I got, got the big again. It's not so easy anymore. You're not so flexible anymore. Uh, do you feel and do you see in yourself something really that, that this has changed you? Or It does. I mean, when I, my, my, first my first company, 2004, my second one, 2007, And it was uh, beginning of the 30s. I was not engaged. I had no kids. So it, doesn't, it did not make a difference for me mm. if I was at home or if I was on the road or somewhere else. On Risks this, are very on, easy on when planet. you don't have a family. Well, you, you live basically, I, I worked from 8 to 11 in the night. And then I went to uh, some place that still had uh, something to eat. Mm. Yeah? <laughs> not talking about brand names here. And then I went to bed and, and, and got up again. So basically, when I first moved to Munich in, in my first flat, I, it took me 11 months to unwrap my stuff because I had no private life. I did not need to have private life because work was everything for me. In it. But this is not possible if you have two kids or if, if, you have, if you're married. Um, I think it's, it's um, you see quite often that successful people, they... Um, one of the challenges they do have is to have a work-life balance, mm -hmm. to, to name this, uh, to take this word, because you want to work. If, if you are motivated and if you like to do what you do, you, you don't have a, a, a clock that says, now it's six o'clock, now go home. What brings you to go home is that you want to spend time with your kids and not being like then, have your kids being 10 years old and then you look back and think, okay, now it's too late for me because I have not seen them raising. And this is maybe, we, we talked about this earlier, maybe you have a second uh, work shift then starting at nine o'clock in, in, the, in the evening. Yeah? But this is um, to have a work-life balance, not only with your kids, but also with your wife or your husband. This is very important too. But that's, that's interesting what you said because I also um, observed that, that, uh, that work-life balance term is almost never used by entrepreneurs. It's a different mindset. It's like, they, they also, interestingly, I do not know one entrepreneur who has something like burnout because that, that's what they are. That's what they do. They do not have something, less, uh, let's say there's something like a working reality which is separate to, to, to my life, but 
this is my life. Sometimes people may think of that as, as negative because they say, ah, you're working all the time and so on. Do you have a life? And um, they're speaking completely different languages like as entrepreneurs who say, yeah, this is my life. This is great. And so on. this is fantastic. Do you think by this that anybody or anyone can be a good entrepreneur? Yes and no, probably. Mm -hmm. Because... Yes, because you can learn the skills that are necessary. No, because it's so hard to always reflect on yourself and optimize yourself and make something better. And one of the most important things as an entrepreneur is to, is to focus. Focus on the, what is currently the most important thing. I mean, this is obviously, that's very important for everybody anyway, in, in, a, yeah. in work. But... In a startup, you do have so many things in parallel and you don't have all these people doing this because in a, in a startup, I mean, you, you start a company, you're doing everything. You're doing the development, you're doing the legal stuff, you're doing Texas, the marketing stuff, yeah. you, everything yeah. which you need to learn you, and you need to learn fast. And it's always important to, to keep focus on the, at this time, very important, most important things. And that could change within uh, the week twice, right? So I think it's, um, if I look in, in at my friend circle or at other people broadly, there are people who I would say can do this and there are other people who probably do not want to do this because it's a, it's a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. yeah. You chose the moment to become an entrepreneur very, very early on in your study, so you basically never did something different. Is this the one best moment to become an entrepreneur? Or is it something, if you look like at our famous five SAP founders who did this much later, they had already careers and they were professionals and so on, then they said at a certain moment, okay, this is a cut, we do something of our own. Is there something right the right moment, which is which you can say generally there is a right moment or is this really, let's say, individual? I think there is, is there a right moment to have kids? Is there a right moment to go to vacation? I think it's always good and bad at the same time because if you, you cannot plan your whole life completely like this. If you are in the beginning of, or in the mid-20s, late-20s, and you, you are in your studies or you finished your studies, then we've been talking about the safety net. That is okay, right? But if you are in the, let's say, mid-40s, you have many things learned that, you, that help you to start a business and you usually have built a, let's say, a own safety net for yourself in terms of a bankroll that helps you to live your dream. So I don't think there's a right and a good spot in your life to start this The only thing that is necessary is that you really, that you really want to do this. Mm -hmm. yeah. And probably like in all in our area, there's probably more of a one moment to less when people decide, or not enough when people decide to become entrepreneur than probably one moment too early or the, the wrong moment. And probably we should more take the risks and not rely on The whole life is uh, insured. M maybe that's a little bit the reason why the entrepreneurship has become such a big topic in the last years, which you could define it as probably trying to encompass the best of both worlds, like being free, being able to develop ideas, but with a safety net and with something like, like an infrastructure behind this. How do you look at something like that? Is it that you say like, um, okay, they, those guys, they want to shower, but don't, do not want to get wet? Or how do you look at such a thing? I think <clears throat> entrepreneurship is a good thing mm -hmm. because it's uh, in, like in a company like SAP with around 100,000 people, you do have these type of people who who are willing to do so but maybe you know it it needs for this recipe it needs a lot of things not only the the uh, courage to do something like this and the risk awareness 
but also you have to have an idea that that fits. You have to have found a problem that you can you have a solution for, etc. And this this big company then basically has that's why it's a big company and there's a cash cow. There's a business that is really running well. But is this business running well in five years, in ten years? Think about Nokia. Back in 2007, they had like the same amount of mobile phones that Apple sold within a month, they sold in one day. And it took three years. So sometimes the disruption can vanish a company within a short time. So you kind of have, have to be paranoid and, as a company. And having, having entrepreneurs is one of the parts to, to be innovative. Working with startups is another, is another part. But these entrepreneurs, and you've been talking about the safety net, and there are two opinions on this. Some say, yes, the safety net is important so that we can get the people just doing this. Others say, no, you, you, you need to get rid of the safety net because you need to have full commitment. Yeah, you need to be all this. in. Yes. Yeah. And I think the latter one is the right one because um, in a way, if you are really forced to do something, mm -hmm. then, then your mind focuses much better on, on what you really need to do. However, this is uh, <laughs> it's a trade-off, right? Absolutely. We said at the beginning, I, I said that billionaire word, which more or less brings us into that definition that a good entrepreneur, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a rich one. Like money, um, money is, is, is the meter to say if an entrepreneur is successful or is not successful. But is there maybe like also like a, a second dimension? Like a good entrepreneur is not maybe does not need to be a billionaire. He may be happier or something like else. What is your take on this? Is a good entrepreneur automatically a financial successful one? I don't think so. That it's only be needs to be measured in a monetary way. Obviously, this is an important thing for me too. So I want to be financially stable so that I can buy things that I would like to have, but not luxury things that actually nobody needs. It's about that I can take free decisions. That makes me happy that I'm kind of my own boss. I do have investors, yes, that play a similar role. But for me, it's important that I can focus on whatever I want to have during the day. And that for me, it's not important that the we already have reached the middle of the week so that the weekend is coming closer. No, for me, it's the opposite. For me, it's like, oh, no, the weekend is already approaching and I, there are still things that I want to do within this week. And not being, not must, it's I want to do them. And this is, I think, this is, if I would say something that is uh, a, a, a currency that you can measure somebody, yes, the monetary thing, and the number of press uh, announcements, whatever, this is something that can be counted. Let, let me ask you maybe a stupid question. Is it maybe also a thing about purpose? Doing your own thing, doing being an entrepreneur gives more purpose than being just one in, in a corporate environment? Can this also be something like what is may drive somebody? Definitely yes. It's um, especially if you're in a in a social entrepreneurship something, then yeah, of course, yeah. Then purpose is all that drives you, mm. or at least a big part of it. In my case now, it's um, there's no story behind that. I said, okay, I had this emotional event in my life that brought me to this idea. Sometimes this is, and that's a good story, but. I would say in almost all cases, there is not, not such a event. It's just that you have found something that you have found this problem, you have found this technology and you, you really are interested in this. And the only thing you need to figure out is there a market because that's the only thing that again, then on the other hand is 
how the success of your company is measured, right? Because you can collect money from VCs and that's one thing. But on the other hand, sometimes you have to sell it and sometimes you have to have happy customers. And maybe this is a better uh, currency, how many happy customers you have. And, and what I extract from what you are saying, I think if there is an event, it should not be something like a narrative one in that way that somebody says like, I am so fed up with my job or let, let's say the people around me that I, I will do my same so I never have these problems again. I think this is not the right stimulus to do that because it should also be something, always be a personal drive, a positive drive. Um, to do that because otherwise if you have these kinds of settings you will also find them probably in an entrepreneurship setting yeah yes um, talking about what you are doing your company it's 42 what is your product 42's product and uh, just to have a quick Introduction for, for the name, yeah. So everybody who does know Douglas Adams and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's the 42. Is the it's the answer? Is the answer? It's yeah. just the answer. Is the answer? <laughs> uh, but actually, if you if you read the novel, then you find out it's not the answer that is works for everything because the the question for that is the question for life, the universe, and all the rest. Mm -hmm. It's about that every answer is individual. Mm -hmm. yeah. The same question is for you probably a different answer than for me. And so we want to provide the tools to find the right individual, the right answer. And this is about interaction with computing, about interaction with devices. It's, I mean, in your daily life, most of the uh, employees in, in, in companies sit several hours every day in front of their computer. And what they're doing is they're typing and they are moving the mouse and clicking. And this is what we focus on because What we created 42 is eye control for workplaces. So next to the keyboard and the mouse, we bring in our gaze, our eyes, to control the computer and to predict what the user wants to do in order to make work easier, to make work more efficient, faster, and to have more fun at work because it's just pure fun to work, to control a computer just with your eyes. G give me a use case. Like, for example, I'm working, for example, with a fuel or with a document or something like that. What would, like, what am I wearing? Am I wearing something or do I have something like a camera? And how does this interaction actually look like? Well, it's one thing you need to know before that is that you, <clears throat> that you move your mouse several kilometers a day that you do thousands of clicks a day. And I'm talking about people sitting in front, you know, in, in, in accounting, in procurement, HR, but also in engineering, development service centers, etc. I mean, what happens there is, think about the, what, the technology you're, you're working in the daily life. The keyboard is 210 years old. Yeah. The mouse is 50 years old. So think about how even 50 years ago IT looked like. Completely different. But still we are using the same technology. And this is, for us, we've been talking about this, if you find a technology a problem, we found the technology first. That eye tracking, that comes from a different perspective for the uh, marketing studies and, and for psychological studies and, and for people who cannot move a mouse or a keyboard to control a computer at all, right? But what we're, we are using it for is to decrease the number, the mouse usage. And by this we make these workplaces 4 to 12% more efficient, and at the same time we make it much more ergonomic. So think about mouse hand and things like this. So health issues because you're working in the way you're doing this for, for 40, 50 years, meanwhile. And everybody's used to it. And now we've, we looked at a way to control it in a, in a different way. So in a Fiori environment, for example, think about just looking at this input field and continue typing. So you don't need to lift your hands from the keyboard to the mouse, do a little mouse move, do a click, go back to the keyboard. 
You just look at this input field and type. Then you look in a different input field and type. And the system understands and that. And the cursor like is, is moving with, with my eyes, more or less. Actually, the, the cursor, so the text cursor in this field, yes, the mouse cursor does not, is not being moved because it's, it's a different paradigm. So we do not want to replace the mouse. We want to create a new interface which is optimized for controlling with the eyes. Just a little example. The first touchscreen for many people has, or touch device, has been the iPhone in 2007. Basically, what you have seen earlier already is uh, in, in 2000, 2001, these PDAs, HP, etc. And this was a Windows CE operating system, which had to be controlled with a pen. So you had a mouse-optimized operating system to be controlled with a touchscreen. That does not work. Steve Jobs did the right thing to create the right interface for the, right, for the modality touch. And the same is for, for eye tracking. You can, in a way, control the mouse with it, but there's much more potential if you, if you use the information that eye tracking delivers to control the computer in a different way. So if you're reading a text, we understand that you're reading this text in a way that you're deep reading or you're skimming the text and the system scrolls automatically in your way, in your personal way. Am I right when, when I listen to that? I imagine, for example, one of the strengths of the system can be like your eyes can become something in that way, like a third hand controlling what you're doing. Because either if you work with a mouse or if you do something with a touch screen, still you have just like two hands. And when you are like scrolling on a touch screen, you still have then to stop the scrolling motion, go down to that virtual keyboard and like continue typing in that area. Mm -hmm. When you can do this with your eyes, you have a third instrument of interacting. True. So it's uh, basically that's exactly what we call it, this third input channel. Mm -hmm. And the great thing, it's not only an input channel like a mouse or the keyboard, it's also an output channel. Because as we know where the user and how the user is looking at the screen, we can predict what he wants to do next and support him in this automatically. So think about in a Again, in a Fury environment, you, you're looking, you're searching for something in a list. We can understand what you're searching for, and then we can preload information so that you reduce the loading waiting time when something is loaded, for example. Or we can present information that says, hey, did you look for this information, mm -hmm. etc. So it's basically, it's a third input channel that helps you to reduce the, the interaction with the other two input channels. Mm -hmm. Let's take another example where it's completely hands-free. This is something that we have been showing at uh, last year's uh, Hannover Messe with Christian Klein at the demo for Angela Merkel, mm -hmm. that he controlled a computer, so a cowboy in this case, on the, on the shop floor, just with his eyes. So he had his, his both hands free to interact with the actual work he wants to do or needs to do and controls the necessary interaction with the IT, which becoming, by the way, is more and more on the shop floor, just with his eyes. So this makes this work flow more efficient again and more, also more, well, convenient for the user. And I'm what I'm also thinking is that it can really bring us into complete new areas of how to interact or how to make software. Because, like, you were talking about the mouse being 50 years old. I, I remember still very good when I was last year in Palo Alto, in the computer museum, where they have this Xerox um, prototype where they, for the first time, had this mouse. And um, the interesting thing is that, of course, they made this mouse, or they, they thought of this mouse, because they had a certain impression of how a graphic, um, a graphic orientation interface should be like, which was in 1970. And, but still, we are still working the same way when we are interacting with the mouse. And, and software and programs have done based on this to be optimized concerning um, mouse usage. And of course, maybe like in the, the, the first decades, the pure existence of the mouse was good because it like evolved the technology to work in a certain way. But when we're talking about um, the way we interact with touch screens and so on, you said it yourself, isn't it so like 
those tools like the mouse we have radically limits the way we write software because we always are looking into that kind of, let's say, mouse-based optimization. It should work perfectly with a mouse, which is itself an input tool which is 50 years old. And when you get rid of it or like enter these, let's say, third dimension with the third hand and the third input channel, um, complete different ways and op doors are open that we've never thought of. Absolutely. So when you, there's this uh, famous quote from Ford when he said, uh, if I ask the people what should they invent, they said, faster horses, right? Um, if you're working in the same environment you do for the last decades, then it's hard to imagine how it could look different. What we did, basically, we, we tried to dig further on what is something that with employees, with, with people, with users in SAP environments, in classical office environments, what is something that, well, they don't like. Let's, let's put it that way. And one of the things they said, they often need to click to select something. Obviously, if you think about how the mouse in 50 years ago, these input fields or these, these uh, graphical interfaces have been much less complex. You had one screen that was a small screen. Now you have several screens, large screens, like you at SAP have 38, 49-inch screens meanwhile, right? Because the applications have been becoming more complex, yeah. more input More is fields, happening. Yeah. More tabs, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's I mean... It's just the way you need to have these data put in into in, into input fields. In the, in this case, so you need to click. You need to select something. But if you get rid of this and say, okay, what can I make different? And then you understand that this paradigm of the, the eyes are not only a input channel but also a information channel that helps you to understand and predict what the user wants to. Then you can open completely new doors, and. I described this um, a few minutes ago that it automatically understands what you want to do and, and preload stuff or it scrolls for you. Um, we, have, we have even created something that, is, uh, that understands what you are looking for in the e-commerce case, for example, that understands um, what actually you are looking for in the way of millions of search results and it decreases the, the amount of search time for the user and for the company, it increases the conversion rate mm -hmm. because nobody will go to page 225 in a search in the e-commerce search. But if we understand that this is something that is interesting to you, it can bring it forward to, to page four mm -hmm. and then the user sees it and can buy it. And so it's, it's a good thing for the user and a good thing for the business. And this is, I think this is something also as a B2B startup very important that you have to keep both in mind the actual user, but also the business relations or the, the business background. Um, while as a B2C startup, you can at the beginning at least focus purely on, on the user. What we not really have talked about yet is the hardware requirements um, area. What do I need to be able to do with that? Um, is it something like I have glasses on or is it something like the, the camera from my laptop is, is mm -hmm. doing this? Um, how is this set up in that case? What you need is that's a little bar that is just uh, attached below your screen. Mm -hmm. There are already notebooks and, uh, and monitors with built-in eye tracking. Um, so this is something that is evolving right now. We see the HoloLens 2 has eye tracking integrated. The HTC Vive Pro has eye tracking integrated. So eye tracking is next to speech the interaction model of the future. I mean, think about somebody wearing the HoloLens. If this is today on the shop floor or if this is in five, six, seven years on the streets like a smartphone, you don't have a pointer with you. You don't have a mouse, obviously, or a keyboard with you. You have speech recognition, you have like pointing maybe with your hands, but just a little bit, not like Minority Report and Tom Cruise. You do this for two minutes, that's okay, but you don't do this for a work day. But you have your eyes because your eyes already are looking there. Your eyes are already looking at a button before you move the mouse to this button. Your eyes are reading or 
we can predict based on your gaze patterns if you are interested in something or not. And based on this, we can dis dis the system can decide how it can support you. So you don't need to have anything um, put on your head or whatever. It's just a little bar that is put on, on your screen and you can start right away. So it's basically it's plug and play. You put it in, you install a software and out of the box you can control if this is your SAP, if this is your um, Outlook or if this is any other application. Talking about your potential customers, for whom is that the right thing? Is it something like where say um, this is something for all ages, professional as well as people working within private life? Um, do you have something like a specific group in mind? Where do you see your future, or where do you see like the this this quite different the first adopt or the first major adoption group, which may be interesting for you? So our focus is purely on enterprise companies. So large corporates that have thousands of workplaces in different environments. That's not only SAP, the classical SAP-based environments in, in, in finance, etc. It's all, it's, as I said earlier, it's also these... In, in Germany, there's, there's obviously this, there's a word for everything. Absolutely. <laughs> there's this term called Sachbearbeiter. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's in English, you could... Maybe clerk comes next to clerk, this. Clerk, case manager, whatever. It's, yeah. it's something, somebody who is really working on a specific set of applications. This can be one or two applications. This could be like in a service center, 10, 15 different applications or on the trading floor. Mm -hmm. This somebody sits in front of this computer for six, seven, eight hours a day. So, and, and when, within this time, he does this several kilometers and thousands of clicks, mouse movements. And this is our focus group. It's not, it's not depending on the application itself. It's about the way he's working. So we see this as a more abstracted level that he's selecting buttons, selecting input fields, selecting something from a drop-down list, scrolling text, searching for something, etc. And based on this, SAP looks like the subgui or Fiori looks the same like an Outlook or an Excel or a browser-based whatever uh, application. Um, you worked a lot of, or quite a lot together with SAP, as far as I've understood, uh, with the I.O. organization. First, why did you choose that kind of, let's say, cooperation? What were your advantages out of it? Um, what are your learnings out of it? Um, what can you tell us about that? So... As many things in life, it was uh, basically by chance that we came across uh, this uh, Industry 4.0 program back in mid-2018. So this was the starting point that we basically started to engage with SAP. And this program from SAP.io, which is the basically the startup engagement um, business unit from SAP, to bring startups with value for the core processes or the core products from SAP. Not only the, the product itself, but also obviously the internal processes, because that's quite often, by the way, that, uh, that companies are looking for engagement of startups to only make their products better or enhance them, but they forget about their internal processes in classical stuff that, well, It's not that fancy often, but it's, uh, it's necessary to you. It's about reducing costs, making people more or employees more happy, etc. So this was the first time we, we came in this 4.0 program. And this Industry 4.0 program, what the idea or the aim is that you basically connect the stakeholders from the LOBs in SAP, so the lines of business in SAP, with the startups. So the right people from the, uh, for example, the, the, the product manager for a specific application that this startup with the product can attach to, to have added value. And then on the other hand, obviously, what is the aim is that your sales teams have something that they can bring to the customer in order to have to solve another problem. I, that's the basic idea. 
So when you asked about the experience, and for us, I think we are a very unique case because our product, as it is about the interaction, sits across any application, right? Because you interact with any application with your keyboard and mouse. So for us, basically all these, we had quite a lot uh, opportunities to speak to people. While on an, most other startups, they have a very specific product that attaches to a very specific product from your side. So there's a, I mean, both both worlds are uh, very good. And, and talking about this program, the experience is a very good experience. And this is really what I really think, because the way the program is set up and optimized itself during during the time it was running, which is an important thing, is helped us to find the right people, talk to the right people, get the time from these right people, because for most P2P, B2B startups, one of the main issues is that you do not find the right people within a corporate. And if you find them, it's about, oh yeah, that sounds interesting, let's meet in yeah. whatever, right? So it's, it's important to have matchmaking to the right people. And for us, it's a, I would say it's a, it's a success story of the program because it's, uh, it helped us and SAP to bring innovation to the customers. And what, of course, may, may happen that when a startup is coming into contexts like these, um, that they may be maybe a little bit reluctant to talk with a company which has like 100,000 people working for it because they say, okay, this is a completely different setup. Do they speak the same language with me? Are they taking me serious? Um, what is your experience concerning that? It has changed within the last years. Mm -hmm. So when I think back like 10 years ago, it is uh, working with startups um, was... It was not that common, A, and B, it was quite often more a, let's say, marketing thingy. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the aim for a specific business unit was to do 10 pilots with startups. Yeah. If this pilot succeeds or goes into production, I don't care. Well, obviously this fails, right? Yeah. So it's, it's important to have, to identify what is working and then have the opportunity and the process to scale it afterwards. So in this case, uh, I would say this has significantly changed within the last uh, 10 years so that even smaller companies, even like classical SMEs that have do not have their own innovation department, they now set up to either participate in a, one of these several accel accelerators that are already out there or like the big companies have their own acceleration system, like SAP. And when we're talking about that cooperation and the maybe the, what a company like SAP does or would do a little bit different maybe like a company like 42, what can big ships like SAP learn from entrepreneurs? Well, a big ship like SAP or other big corporates once have been a startup, right? So they once have had an idea, created this idea, and looked for customers. And while you are, as you have been successful, and during this journey had more and more employees onboarded, you had to create processes that sometimes make it harder, <laughs> let's say, to be innovative because you have specific goals. Mm. I mean, you have your cash cow. Mm. Who should eat your cash cow? Yourself. You should eat your cash cow. You should not wait how it's, how it's squeezed, uh, after it's squeezed out, and then you understand, okay, now we need to figure out a new business. So like the automotive industry is a good example that, that have massive change now coming. So you need to prepare what comes after this golden automotive age, which is, by the way, also an important thing for the whole society because it's, it's one of our major industries. And you have to 
I, I talked about Nokia earlier. Nokia did this once. Mm -hmm. So they created these uh, um, rubber shoes and then they created mobile phones. But they did not have the the next change they had to do. They did they the next big thing was missing. Yeah, like mm -hmm. Kodak. There are several of these yeah. companies. So and, and even okay, maybe the Kodak case, maybe a little bit, let's say to one to, told one time too often, yeah, because nobody wants to hear it. What I still like in the Kodak case is not only the, let's say, being out of the major business like after three years is about being forced more or less out of business by your own invention and innovation. Because they founded themselves, exactly. they developed the digital photography for themselves, but they had not the right steering. They kept it down. Yeah, they, yeah. they, they kept it down and they, they did not really um, steer the ship into that direction to, to yeah. leverage it. So uh, coming back to the question, what could big ships learn? I think if you, you, you should make it very obvious, and that must come from the very top of the company, that it's allowed within entrepreneurships, etc., to really follow your ideas. And it's like a little plant. You need to, in the first, in, in beginning, you need a little bit of water, And when you see it's successful, you need to water it more. So you need to bring in people. And you need to, even if it attacks your cash cow, it's even better, as I said, that you do it for yourself than it does a different company. So in this way, I would definitely say that the way of failing, that's something we also heard quite often, yeah? But still in Germany, And in good old Europe, I would say, I would use this term, failing is a different way than in a classical entrepreneur environment like the Silicon Valley. So that, you, that it's okay to follow your idea, to fail, to make it better, but that in the end, you can follow your dream to do something. Because that is the motivation that brings people to create fantastic things. And this is what a startup is about, little plan to big, big tree. And this should also be something that uh, comes more in the mindset of the different levels of management within the big corporates. Stefan, that was very interesting 50 minutes with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.